Heavenly Father, you are the God of all the people of the earth. We gather this morning as part of the great multitude which you have made for yourself to give you honor and praise. And Lord, you speak to us through your holy word. May the love of your Holy Spirit enlighten our hearts and minds to its truth so that we may see more clearly the beauty and wonder of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So Mario Kart is one of my favorite video games of all time, partly because it's one of the few games that I actually have any amount of competency in. But for anyone who is unfamiliar with the game, it's a popular Nintendo like go-kart racing game um, started in the 90s. It's got characters like Mario, Peach, Bowser, Toad, etc. And it's super simple. It's just three laps around this or that racetrack. And there are these occasional item boxes that you can grab um, that will give you some sort of advantage, like a speed boost. And when I was little, I would play Mario Kart 64 with my siblings and my cousins. And there was this one map that was called Koopa Troopa Beach. Some of you might be familiar with it. This map had a secret shortcut that uh, would boost you up in the air, and you had to land in this narrow little cave that was on the side of a cliff. Um, and if you missed, then it was tough luck. You fell down onto the beach, and you had to turn around and go back to, um, to yeah, the rest of the racetrack. Um, the trouble was that for six-year-old Ian, this was a rather difficult operation to perform, because you had to aim the jump just right to get into the cave. Now, at first, my motivation for risking the jump would be to gain an advantage on the other racers, because if you made it through the tunnel, then you come out the other side, you're a little bit farther ahead than where you would have been. Of course, when I inevitably missed the cave on my first try, rather than recognizing the folly of my attempt and just getting back on the racetrack, I would just kind of turn around and try the jump again and again and again. And all the while, you know, all the other racers are gaining laps on me. But there was a certain uh, glory and excitement to successfully making that jump that I thought was more fun than just participating in the actual race. Now, when I played this track, I preferred to use it for my own purpose rather than follow the path that was set out for all the racers. And this is just what we do, right? It's human nature to want to find unique ways of getting what we want. We all have this tendency to come up with our own way of doing um, this or that to get some sort of self-advantage. Sometimes you do it because you're afraid. You're afraid of a world where there's not enough to go around. You don't trust others to share, so you do what is ever in your power to make sure that you get ahead. Or you seek self-advantage out of pride and ambition. You want to be great, you want to be known, you want to be praised. Sometimes you go your own way just for the sheer pomposity of it, right? You've been allotted some kind of limit and you just can't bring yourself to accept that limit. And so you feel like you need to prove to the world, prove to God, prove to yourself that you can overcome your limit. Now, of course, it's not always bad to find a new way of doing something or even push the limits of achievement. You know, it wasn't a sin to play around with the shortcut instead of, you know, playing Mario Kart how 
They're supposed to play it. But sometimes we're given a choice between self-advantage and obedience to God. And this was the choice that was given to the people in our passage this morning. The people at Babel were given a clear mandate. The text actually calls it a blessing to fill the earth. But they chose rather to disobey God, to disobey his blessing and gather together in one place. They built a city and a tower for their own purposes apart from God. And so we'll see from this story that despite humanity's attempt to reject God's blessing, God accomplishes his purpose for creation nonetheless. And we'll see this play out in three movements. First, we'll see what I'm going to call the fear of Babel. Second, the folly of Babel. And last, the fall of Babel. So the fear of Babel, the folly of Babel, and the fall of Babel. Now, the story of Babel, which is also known as Babylon, seems to show up in a strange place in our Bibles. Because the beginning of chapter 11 says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And already we want to pause. Because wasn't the last chapter all about how, you know, the earth was full of clans and languages and nations? Well, it seems that Moses, who wrote Genesis, was um, interrupting the chronology of his narrative to give the backstory of how the world came to be full of all this diversity that we saw in chapter 10. So why don't we back up and take a look at chapter 10. Genesis 10 is traditionally called the table of nations or the table of Gentiles. And this really is a fascinating chapter and it's so, so important for setting up the trajectory of the story of God's redemption for creation. And I want to point out three things in this chapter. First, Genesis 10 displays the common origin of all humankind. We see the nations of the ancient world descend from one man and his family and disperse over the earth. When God later tells Abraham that he's going to bless all the families of the earth through him and through his offspring, he's talking about these families and their descendants in chapter 10. This chapter is the beginning of the story of God's salvation for all the people of the world. Second, Genesis 10 follows the line of messianic promise. The lineage of promise began with Eve and is traced through the line of Shem down to Abraham and eventually culminates in our Lord Jesus. You might recognize a few of the names in this chapter, uh, like Egypt, Canaan, Assyria, Babylon, Interestingly, these, these empires that made names for themselves, these are part of the cursed line of Ham. All of these recognizable names, they come from Ham's lineage. But the line of promise is through Shem, whose name in Hebrew literally means name. Now, none of his sons are particularly powerful in the world's eyes. And yet it is through them through Shem's line, that God gives the promise of blessing. Third, Genesis 10 shows that God's purpose for humanity is being fulfilled. Because verse 32, it says, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread 
broad on the earth after the flood. So the reader is meant to see this spreading and diversity of language as a really good thing. Because from Adam to Noah, God blessed humanity to be fruitful, to, to multiply, to fill the earth. And now that reality is beginning to take shape. And this is exactly what makes the next chapter so shocking. So let, uh, let's look at it. Here in 11, Moses takes us back in time to explain how the nations came to be spread over the earth. Of course, what we'll see is that humanity attempted to reject God's blessing, but God accomplished his purpose for creation nonetheless. Let's look at verse one. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and the people migrated from the east and they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. A lot of people today debate about what was exactly so bad about Babel. Well, there was a lot that was bad, but I think the text tells us here what the main issue was right at the end. They didn't want to be dispersed over the face of the earth. And this is what I'm going to call the fear of Babel. They were afraid of being dispersed. You know, well, what's so wrong about that? Well, what's wrong is that it's actually deliberate disobedience to God, to God's blessing. The people at, at Babel would have been familiar with um, God's covenant with Noah, God's mandate to fill the earth. After all, these were Noah's children and grandchildren, according to the text. They knew God's blessing, and they rejected it. They knew that God told Grandpa Noah that the earth was created specifically for them, that God gave the earth to humanity to be inhabited, and that he would provide abundantly in every place that they went. Despite the fall, despite the flood, God's purpose remains. You know, there's plenty of things that we lost in the fall. But the abundant provision of God, the resolute care of the Father for his children is not one of those things. So why didn't the people at Babel want to disperse? Well, I imagine at first it was because of fear. Fear of what might lie beyond the horizon of the plain. They didn't believe God. They didn't believe his promise to provide. I think it's ironic that we tend to remember the people of Babel as being really haughty and sure of themselves, but in the beginning, they were probably just insecure humans with a scarcity mindset, afraid for their self-preservation, and this is what led them into their sin. And I bet you can relate to that. Because how often has God called you to something and you shrunk back because to follow him would be to wander into the unknown. You have enough now, but you're not sure about tomorrow. So you hold off taking that position or that project because you can't see how God could ever provide enough through it. Or you hold off having that tough conversation because you can't imagine your life without this or that relationship 
in case things went south. And yet God has proven time and time again that he isn't a God of scarcity, but he's a God of abundance. That wherever he calls you, you know that you can trust him to provide, even if it's just one day at a time. It reminds me, when Jesus instructed his disciples to feed the 5,000, he didn't multiply the loaves and fish into this big pile before giving it to the disciples. He didn't even tell them the miracle that he was about to do, but rather he blessed this tiny meal and without a word, he gave it to his disciples to distribute. And he expected them to have faith. And it says that everyone ate and was satisfied. So wherever God calls you to go, he will provide. Even if you're afraid, even if you struggle to believe this promise, God will accomplish his purpose for you nonetheless. But of course, the people of Babel didn't believe this. Instead of dispersing over the earth, they determined to shut themselves in a city. And they start making bricks. And upon closer inspection, we'll see that the bricks reveal the folly of this project. This is the second point, the folly of Babel. Now, this little detail about the bricks is interesting. Many biblical commentaries will mention that the Hebrew word for brick, lebana, is a pun for the word folly, uh, which is nebula. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it sounds like a pun. Moses is emphasizing the folly of their pursuit by describing their use of makeshift bricks instead of stone. So in other words, the project was doomed from the beginning. So now they have bricks, and they shut themselves in this city of self-preservation, and they say, let us build a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Now here we see that the folly of Babel is more than just a simple refusal to spread over the earth. They were driven by fear, yes, but they were also driven by pride and ambition. They had no regard for the worship of the true creator God or the glory due his name. Instead, they set out to erect a monument to their own glory, their own accomplishment. And what they do is they build a temple. At the top of this temple tower, was supposed to be the home of the gods, a gateway to heaven where humanity could commune with the gods. In many ancient empires, the emperors themselves were thought to be gods, and it was no different in Babylon. In fact, the ancient Babylonian creation myth suggests that the idols of the gods who were worshiped at the top of the Tower of Babel were none other than the men who built Babel. So were they worshiping false gods or were they worshiping themselves? And the answer, of course, is both. And this is clear from verse four in our text. They want a, a temple tower up to the heavens and they want to make a name for themselves. And this is the folly of all false worship. Like Eve, they thought that they could be like God. They wanted life on their own terms. Think about how you might be like them. Rather than accept their limitation and dependence on God, they sought self-sufficiency, self-exaltation, and rejected relationship with their creator. 
They sought their own fame and glory instead of God's glory. But of course, it was all for nothing. Because anything that we make or do apart from God can never last. But despite their prideful attempt at glory, God accomplished his purpose for them nonetheless. All their foolish and arrogance is finally interrupted in verse 5, where we see God's response to the city and tower of Babel. This is the third and last point, the fall of Babel. Now, verse 5 is the very center and the turning point of our story. It says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. How funny that the Babylonians thought that their tower had breached the walls of heaven, when in reality the thing is so small that God has to come down to see it. It's as though God is on his hands and knees, you know, peering over to look at this tower as if, you know, it's like a kid on his hands and knees looking at a line of ants or something with a magnifying glass. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Now, I've already showed that the main issue of the city and the tower was that they were going against God's purpose to fill the earth. In this verse, God recognizes that unless he intervenes, they'll never spread over the earth. They'll keep on building their empire, building these great temples and towers of false worship, and probably on the backs of enslaved people made uh, to make the bricks. They'll only become more entrenched in their idolatry and their injustice blind to their need of God. And so God intervenes. And this verse really displays God's care for humanity. God's response is not only a judgment on the builders, but more than that, it's a mercy. It's an act of redemption through judgment. The purpose being to fulfill God's original blessing for humanity to fill the earth. Come, let us go down there and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And that's the fall of Babel. Despite humanity's attempt to reject God's blessing, God accomplished his purpose for creation nonetheless. Now, something that I noticed about this story is that there wasn't really um, an opportunity for repentance, at least not in the text. There's no prophet that comes along and is like, hey, stop. (laughs) Instead, God acted decisively by just changing the course of events but not everyone responded with a change of heart. That fear and pride that they had before Babel remained. And fear and pride are a dangerous combination. Genesis 10 says that Babel was only the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom. He went on to establish Assyria and Nineveh and more. He became one of those mighty men of renown 
and he continued to make a name for himself. Brothers and sisters, the problem of Babel is the problem that we still deal with today. Because the problem of Babel, of fear and folly, idolatry, injustice, empire, these aren't things that just exist out there or in our book. But they are sin that remain in the hearts of humanity, in my heart and in yours. But in this text, we see the beginning of our hope. It says, and the Lord came down. And the Lord came down. As a cloud of smoke on Mount Sinai, the Lord came down. As a baby born of a virgin, the Lord came down. As a mighty rushing wind and prophetic tongues of fire, the Lord came down. This is who our God is. He loves us. He comes down to us for our salvation, to give us the law, to die on a cross and be raised for the forgiveness of sin, to give us second birth. His ultimate purpose for creation is nothing less than the reconciliation of all things. And so we, the Lord's people, eagerly await the day when the angel will say once and for all, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And in its place, the new heavenly city, the dwelling place of God will come down. Our Lord will come down again. So we, like the people of Babel, thought that we could build our city, our temple, our kingdom up to heaven. But it was always God's intention to bring his perfect city down to us. And in this city, it said that the gates are never shut. And all the nations bring their honor and glory into it. So despite humanity's attempt to reject God's blessing, God accomplishes his purpose for the redemption of creation nonetheless. So may we be a people who rejoice in God's blessing and boldly expect our Father to provide abundantly wherever he calls us. May we be a church that isn't concerned with self-sufficiency or making a name for ourselves, but, but that seeks repentance and humility before the Lord. And may we all let off building our own kingdoms and submit to the reign of the one true king, Jesus Christ, to whom be all honor and glory and dominion forever. Amen.